Welcome to the Joy Venture Podcast, a show where dreamers and doers share stories of discovering, developing, and spreading their joy with the world. I'm your host, Thad Devassi. In this episode, Jeremy and I sit down with John McCollum, Executive Director of Asia's Hope, an organization that is transforming lives around the world based on two extraordinary ideas, that an orphan home can be a real family and that all of us can lead courageously on behalf of the world's most vulnerable children. Jeremy and I know this to be true, as we've both been to Cambodia and witnessed firsthand the life-changing work that John and his organization is doing. Before we dive in, two quick notes about this episode. First, some of the content in our conversation is heartbreaking, and it may be disturbing to some. And second, that intermittent beeping you hear is a truck that was positioned right outside the Asia's Hope office during our interview. And sometimes you just got to roll with it. So enjoy and be inspired by our conversation with John McCollum. John, why don't you tell us a little bit about Asia's Hope? Just, you know, kind of give us that sort of 30,000 foot view of what it is you're doing now. And then I kind of want to peel back how in the world you got <laughs> to, to that point. Well, uh, Asia's Hope is a uh, nonprofit organization based here in Columbus, Ohio. Um, we work in Cambodia, Thailand, and India. We work with 100% indigenous staff. It means there aren't American people, Westerners, white people overseas doing the work. Uh, but we work uh, with indigenous staff in Cambodia, Thailand, and India. And what we do is we provide family-style residential care for orphaned kids that are at high risk of sexual and economic exploitation. And so um, we could use the colloquial term orphanages, but what we are trying to do is to do something that is uh, significantly different from the uh, commonly understood and commonly practiced model of institutional orphanages. So what we try to do is for, for every single child in our care to put them in an environment that simulates a family as much as possible um, and, and we can get into later sort of what that looks like. But that's what we do. And then we partner with uh, businesses, churches, families, family foundations, individuals here in the States, some in Canada, also uh, in Australia now, uh, to raise funds and uh, provide logistical support uh, for these really inspiring, hardworking uh, indigenous staff that, that make this happen on a daily basis. When, when you talk about family style orphan care. That's, um, not terminology I was familiar with until I met you. Yeah. And, and, you know, we get, we, we sort of have the old hard luck, you know, sort of like mid 20th century version of what an orphanage is. Sure. What is, so what is different about your model and, and it just kind of explain what, what it is that you're doing that's different. Sure. Uh, first of all, I, I would say that, uh, that, that picture that most of us have when we hear the word orphanage actually does play out into reality in many places in the world. Most 
residential orphan care at any kind of scale in developing countries really is what we'd call institutional. You've got uh, kids that are really seen as a uh, problem to be solved rather than uh, you know an asset or a treasure to be to be uh, developed, and so you'll see these. Uh, institutions that tend to have a very poor child-to-staff ratio. So you might have, in some places, I was in an orphanage in India a couple years ago that had 1,200 kids living at it. There was about a 60-to-1 child-to-full-time-staff ratio. Um, The kids, they did get something to eat every day, and they were relatively safe from the perils of the outside world, but they didn't have any sort of personal nurture. There's no possible way to even know the names of all the kids, much less where they came from, what their background was. So at Asia's Hope, what we do is we uh, create these family units. So we, we have a single family home that we build. Each home has its own garden and playground and, 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 uh, and rooms for the kids. But most importantly, what we have is we have a full-time mom and dad. It's a married couple, and they raise their biological kids at the home, inside the home, along with the Asia's Hope kids. And then we have other full-time staff, usually aunties or grandmas, uh, who uh, come into the home. They live there as well. And then we provide all sorts of other uh, enrichment and nurturing activities. So our homes, they're, they're a big family, although uh, if you uh, look on TLC, you'll see it's not unprecedented. But we'll generally have about 20 kids uh, and four to five full-time staff. And then a lot of other coaches and friends and pastors and tutors and, uh, and, and teachers that are involved in the kid's life. But the, the model is really centered around each of these individually family units. And so right now we have 32 of them um, in our three countries, and uh, we're growing, uh, and, and we think we'll add a couple more this next year. You'll see a lot of research that shows orphanages are bad for kids. Kids do poorly in orphanages. And um, what we've seen is that uh, we're providing a vastly different type of uh, environment for these kids, kids who can't be safely reunited with family members. Uh, they can't be safely reintegrated into their community because of their individual circumstances. And we get a chance to bring them in, usually as sibling groups, we get to keep sibling groups together, to bring them in and provide them a high nurture env- environment. And uh, they do uh, very well. So I just to help with the context a little bit for these kids that are in your homes that are part of the family now, what are their options? If it wasn't for Asia's hope, what what were their options? We get a lot of kids from a lot of different backgrounds, but uh, when we say that we focus on kids that are at high risk of sexual and economic exploitation, that's because in uh, each of these contexts in India, in Cambodia and in Thailand, where we work among hill tribe minority groups, there really are no social services provided by the government. There's not a social services with uh, social workers who can come and check up on kids. Um, and, and so these kids are in situations where they're in communities and families that have been absolutely ravaged, not only by poverty, but sometimes by addiction, by crime, by violence. And so you see a very high percentage of these kids uh, are expected to achieve a very low educational rate barely read and write, almost none of them would otherwise be expected to graduate secondary school. And uh, uh, they've got to find a way to contribute to whomever has taken them in. If they don't go to an institutional orphanage, which we've already talked about the 
problems with those. You know, they're, they're going to be pulled out as soon as they're able to work, and they'll work in factories. They'll work uh, in, on fishing boats. They'll work in dangerous conditions. Some of them might actually be trafficked uh, for commercial uh, sex trafficking. Um, we've had kids who have come to us, uh, I think of one girl in India, Uh, She was about nine years old, and her mom was a prostitute living in a brothel. And she would stay in the room with her mom, sometimes hiding under the bed or in in the wardrobe, while her mom was being raped 10, 12, 15 times a night. And the owner of, uh, of the brothel had said, you do understand that she belongs to us. And as soon as she starts to develop physically, she's going to have to start sleeping with clients. And she was smuggled out by a social worker and a pastor, uh, and she came into our care. We have other kids who they've been bounced around from home to home to home. And at age five, six, seven, they've been already working as domestic workers, as farmhands. Um, and so they really have no hope most of these kids. And that's what we focus on. We don't want just poor kids whose families are struggling and then take the kids out and bring them into our care. We have the kids that that really have no other options in front of them. Tell us about how you discovered your direction in orphan care. I mean, do you have an advanced degree in this? Do you have a special set of uh, background that allowed you to be uniquely positioned to be able to do this? Explain how you got into orphan care. Well, you see, I'm a graphic designer. So that was my background. I was working uh, at a graphic design firm. Did you get a degree in graphic design? No, actually, I have a degree in English. So, um, but, um, you know, when I was going back into high school uh, and that, I always either wanted to be a professional artist or a musician, uh, but then I started uh, realizing that that I also wanted to pay the bills and support a family, and I thought that that wasn't particularly credible, so I decided to go after an English degree, after which I was going to go to grad school probably law school, become a state representative, and then a senator, and then president of the United States, and then galactic overlord, or whatever comes after that. That was sort of my original career plan. But uh, it turns out that uh, I wasn't cut out for that. My wife hates wearing uh, uh, ball gowns, and, and neither of us like to schmooze that much. So when I was in college, I started doing some uh, graphic design for uh, friends. I think the first thing I did was for a friend whose dad had a landscaping business. I designed a logo on a Mac Plus with four megabytes of RAM and uh, a nine-inch black and white screen and uh, some pirated software. Um, and, and I, and I, by the time I graduated high school or graduated university, I realized that, uh, wow, maybe I actually can make a living doing something I enjoy, which was not only the graphic design side of it, but sort of that business side of it, trying to find out what makes, uh, the guy who runs a landscaping business, what makes him tick, what makes his landscaping business better, uh, than the one down the road. And, and so I was able to kind of marry, uh, some of my, my narrative and strategic interests with a certain artistic ability. And um, so I graduated college. I worked at a couple agencies in a couple different cities. And I moved back to Columbus in 1990, probably 1996. And, um, and uh, by 1998, I had started a small company that uh, actually Jeremy uh, worked with me for a few years there. So that was my start. But uh, nothing really uh, prepared me for the work I would be doing today directly. You know, when I, if you would have asked me when I was 25 years old uh, to name the top 25 places I'd like to visit before I died, there wouldn't have been a single place in Asia. 
So it's not like I'd always wanted to work in Asia. I'd always felt this call. Um, you wouldn't have seen the Taj Mahal, uh, Angkor Wat, the Great Wall of China. None of those places were on my radar screen. But one thing is my wife, Corey, and I, we had always wanted to adopt uh, a child. And uh, we were both biologically able to reproduce as far as we can tell, but uh, we just felt like that was sort of a calling on our life. And so so in the summer of 1997, uh, we traveled to Hanoi, Vietnam to adopt our son, Chien, who just turned 19 years old, but back then he was a six-month-old baby. Uh, when we got to Vietnam, some things in our heart had already started to change. When we started the process, it was really about us adopting our child, us building our family. But by the time we finished the year-long adoption process, uh, and and especially sealed when we got to Vietnam and we saw the state-run orphanages and we saw the kids begging on the streets, uh, our vision had begun to expand a little bit beyond just we're here to take our baby home with us and complete our family and expand to thinking about the kids who had be left behind, the kids who uh, wouldn't be adopted, the kids who uh, wouldn't have anyone to care for them. And so it's, uh, a seed got planted in our mind while we were there. Um, we came back home, uh, continued on with our normal lives. We actually uh, started the design firm and dug in deep with that. We shortly afterwards adopted another child. It was a surprise adoption, which rarely happens, but it's a story for another day. Um, but Pak, who was Korean, and so now our life was really seeming to uh, point in a direction east. Uh, and, and we were wondering, what, what is this all about? What's this going to become? We actually considered for a short time, maybe we should become like aid workers or missionaries. And we're going to a church at a time, and we talked with the, uh, the pastors there, and they told us, no, we don't think you're cut out for any sort of international ministry. And uh, so we just continued on with what we were doing. I continued to try to build the company. Um, and... Um, the youth pastor at the church who I'd become friends with said to me, John, I know you uh, are really interested in Asia and you're thinking about Vietnam. Uh, would you ever consider doing anything in Cambodia? And, and I said, well, you know, sure, why not? I didn't know that much about Cambodia. I just knew that it was next to Vietnam and that it was poorer than Vietnam. And, and I'd heard some of the stories about what happened there in the 70s with the genocide. I'd seen some things on TV about uh, uh, child prostitution and sexual exploitation of kids. But I didn't really have a deep understanding of Cambodia. But at that time, you know, my wife and I just both felt like, yeah, I should try to pursue this a little bit. He's, and, and so the youth pastor said, well, I know a guy, and he's a pastor of a church in Worcester, which is about an hour and a half from here. You ought to call him, because he takes trips to Cambodia every year or so and does something over there. You should talk to him. So um, next day, I called this guy. I introduced myself. The guy's name was Dave Atkins. And he said, yeah, I take trips every year. I met a Cambodian guy, and I keep on going back every year. And sometimes we bring doctors, and sometimes we bring nurses uh, and musicians, and we do youth outreach things. And I said, I, I want to go over with you. I really want to see what you're doing, because I feel like there's something there for me. And... Um, and he said, well, call me back in about 10 months because i am got a team we're leaving in about three weeks and we've already bought our tickets and we don't have any more room for you. And um, we've already booked our hotel rooms and that. And, and I said, no, I really feel like I'm supposed to go on this trip. And uh, it, it didn't make sense for a lot of reasons. One, he told me he didn't have room for me. Two, my wife had just come home because we had two, from work because we had two small kids, and so that had cut our income in half. I was starting a small business, which had cut our income even further. Um, 
but both Corey, my wife, and I felt like this is something's happening here. And so uh, I decided to push a little bit further. Long story short, uh, uh, three weeks later, I was on a plane by myself on my way over to uh, Cambodia to meet up with this guy and a couple other people I'd never met before uh, to see what, uh, what was going on in Cambodia and to see if there was some fit for me there. As the plane was... Uh, heading over Asia towards Vietnam, I really felt this stirring in my heart. And uh, I thought, this is, this is because this is where we adopted our son from. This is uh, his homeland. But the strange thing is, looking back on it, is as we started to get closer and closer to Cambodia, we left Vietnam and headed towards Phnom Penh, Cambodia. The feeling just got stronger and stronger. Uh, and I and I, I describe it now uh, that it was sort of like there's a plumb line attached to my heart, and it was pulling me down into this place that I'd never been. So uh, over the next couple weeks, um, I, I just had sort of a, a mind blowing experience. I don't really even remember that much about the mission of the trip that I was on. Um, it was, looking back on it, it was sort of about all of us white people up in front and you know, playing guitar and going out and doing stuff. And, and it's not the sort of thing which I would design uh, a trip around these days. That wasn't the treasure there. What, what really was the treasure was the Cambodian people I met. I went to um, genocide museums and learned about the Holocaust that had killed a third of the people in Cambodia. We visited state-run orphanages, some of those terrible ones that I described before. We we saw the poverty on the streets. At that time especially, you couldn't walk three, three steps without seeing uh, somebody with a, a naked child in their arms begging for money or begging for food. Um, we saw all of that, but I also met these Cambodian uh, Christian pastors who had been especially targeted during the Khmer Rouge regime. Any, anything that was related even tangentially to the West uh, was targeted as being counter-revolutionary. And so the church, Christian church, um, at the time I went, uh, represented about 2% of the Cambodian population. It had almost been wiped out. But I met these people who were so full of joy. I went into church services where I, they were filled with people who were both perpetrators and victims all together uh, living in community, living in forgiveness, and taking really the lion's share of you know, caring for the poor and, and, and educating the poor and clothing the naked and feeding the hungry. And, and I, I, I saw something in those guys that, that really sort of triggered in me a sense of hope, a sense that, um, that, that maybe uh, these people who had very little to their name, they had nothing but the, the passion inside of them and a vision for making their world a better place uh, and, and very little resources. Something in there made me think, I want to be involved in this. I, I got to get my hands on this. So by the end of that trip, uh, I was talking with Dave and, and I, I just said, so what's next for us? What are we going to do next? And his first reaction was kind of, you know, I don't know, uh, who we is, and I don't know what next means. You and I both have full-time jobs, and you can come back with me next year if you want. But but as we started talking about it, um, you know, I think that together we saw that with his contacts in Cambodia and people he knew, and with some of the skills I had uh, learned in uh, my business, maybe we could raise a little bit of money for these people. And that's all it started out as. We weren't looking to start a nonprofit organization. We weren't 
really, even the, the type of orphan care we're doing right now is only on the periphery of our radar screen. It was just, we've met these amazing people and they don't have any money. And we recognize that we don't have any skills. And probably the best thing we can do is to invest in what they're doing. I tell people it was more... Um, venture capital than it was entrepreneurialism. And people look at what we've done and see it as an example of my entrepreneurial spirit. And I would really say it was more of a venture capital spirit. I saw something that was great, this this fire that was burning, and it could have gasoline thrown on it, or it could have water. And, uh, you know, so we started asking our friends to give uh, for a couple small projects here and there. And over the next couple of years, it grew. And it grew. Um, and um, here we are today, 15 years later, and uh, we've just seen uh, our entire lives be transformed. Uh, I shut down my business in 2009. Um, Dave left the organization about that time to start another thing. And today I get to get up every morning, and my full-time job is to find resources for these amazing people who are providing uh, these homes for these uh, great kids. So you're in Cambodia, and you have that moment with David and you say, you know, what are we going to do next? Um, this is a really interesting part of the story because you're there, your wife is home with kids and you've made this, how do you make this decision? I, I, I liken it to the idea that, you know, once you learn something, you can't unlearn it. So what are you going to do with it? And, and you sort of made that decision in the moment that you're, you're going to do something with it. Talk to us a little bit about, okay, reality. You come home, you have this business, you have two young kids, and now you're ready to do something, you know, it's not quite at the point where you're ready to, to shut down the agency, that comes later, but you know that things are different. How They're different for you. Corey's not experienced that yet. Talk about how this, this completely changes the entire paradigm of your family. Sure. You know, and it's one of those things that I'm blessed uh, to have a wife who is very different from me, but is on the same wavelength. I mean, I'm a artist and an expressive person and a narrative person. She's uh, an engineer and an empiricist and, and she's the planner. She's the one who is, uh, always, uh, uh, counting the cost before it happens. Uh, but, but in this we were, um, united. And I think for me, you know, faith, my faith is an important part of my life. And so I, for me, I would just have to say that God kind of changed our hearts. I remember right when we were starting our business, I remember driving through with Corey, uh, driving through Bexley, which in Columbus is an old money, uh, very wealthy part of town, uh, beautiful mansions on a hill. And we had just had one really good month. We'd had the first month that I'd actually cashed any checks. Um, and I think this may have, uh, this actually was before we'd started the company. It was, it was a freelance job I'd taken right before that. And, and I'd sort of done some back of the napkin calculations. And I remember telling Corey, you know what, if, if we keep on this trajectory, you know, within 10 years, that could be us. We could own that house. And it's one of those things that almost as soon as I said it, those words kind of died in my mouth. And, uh, you know, the, the luster wore off of that really quickly. And for me, I think that was a blessing. Um, but, um, you know, we both experienced something when we went and when we prepared to go to Vietnam that we knew that something was changing in our hearts. You know, I, I mentioned faith's an important part of my life. One of the stories that Jesus gives that has become really meaningful me, to me is he said, the kingdom of God is like a man who finds a treasure hidden in a field. And uh, 
he goes and he buries it back again and he goes off and he sells everything he has to, uh, to buy that treasure. And I, and I sort of identify, especially when I went to Cambodia and I saw that I knew that there was, that, that I had stumbled across that, that buried treasure. You know, I, I stubbed my toe on it and I'd been able to pry the lid up just enough and shine the flashlight just enough that I saw that there was gold in there. And uh, the, the impact that I saw the joy of the li- and the meaning in the lives of the people I'd met there. And, and I knew that that was something that I wasn't going to be able to achieve, even if I did meet my, my financial goals and my business goals and that. So um, I, I just think it's a blessing that uh, God sort of uh, allowed me to see a glimpse of something that was really meaningful, and it took a little bit of the shine off the stuff that I had previously wanted to do. But, you know, at that moment... I, I, lest I sound, you know, like I, I, you know, was some saint taking a vow of poverty, that really wasn't what was on my mind. I, I wasn't thinking at this point in time, okay, here's our opportunity to sell everything we have and give it to the poor. It was really, this would be the least I could do. You know, I, I think of the first project we uh, committed to was like $750 a month. And at that time, I thought, well, Dave, you can give 250 I can give 250 We can ask people we know, and I'm sure we can make that happen. It was a little bit of faith. It wasn't a lot. Uh, and after that, we just kind of took step by step by step. And as the opportunities came to us, um, we just continually said yes to them. Um, and, and, and it was one of those things that when I look back on it, I was still ambitious for my company. I still wanted us to win lots of awards and I wanted us to do well. Um, what I thought was going to happen is that my company would become a venue uh, for, uh, for us to do this business, uh, to do this, this work. But looking back on it, I realized that the first time I went to uh, Cambodia, um, the shine of what I saw there kind of took my eye off the road a little bit from the company. And just progressively over the next six, seven, eight years, you know, I took my, first took my eye a little bit off the road, then I took my foot off the gas, and finally I took my hand off the wheel and kind of got, off the ca- got out of the car and shut the door and left the car on the side of the road. And it was, it was one of those things that it was very disruptive for my life and for the lives of the people around me because it wasn't a plan that we had. It wasn't particularly well-ordered. Looking back on it, you see everything as a progression and you can see the historical sort of through line, but that's sort of uh, you know, something that we do psychologically to sort of add maybe an artificial um, grid of order over the chaos that everyday life presents you. You just said something that, we've recently been talking about and is, is sort of key to what we talk about at Joy Ventures, this idea of that uh, it's not a plan, it's pursuit. And um, to hear you say that it wasn't well planned, uh, help other people who are listening get inside your head here for a second. Because here, here we've heard that you're, you're this English major who became a designer, who had a heart to adopt, that then you know, goes to Cambodia and bit by bit, you kind of get drawn into this, this new world and, you know, call it a calling on your life, whatever it is. You're human. You had those desires of, of, of the house on the hill. If we, if we work really hard, but at what point did you have that sort of BS detector going off in your head going, who am I to think that I can do this? Right. Talk about the sort of, you know, the internal struggle that you had of like, 
am I am I even equipped to do this? How do I know what the people in Cambodia, the people in Thailand, and in India, and working with these governments? I'm not I'm not equipped to do this. Did you have those feelings, and how did you persevere through that? Well, yeah, I mean, I think that one of the things that uh, I was blessed with early on in this is that I didn't get the big picture of what it was going to become, and so I was able to learn piece by piece. Um, and, you know, I actually think that uh, I didn't really suffer from an imposter syndrome in this because uh, early on I was able to acknowledge I don't know what I'm doing. And that, that's one of those things that I think was really helpful. I didn't have any illusion that I had anything I could bring to the table that would help these people other than uh, money, and and I didn't have much of that. And, and you know, to a certain extent, that sort of flies in the face of a lot of development theory. We have a lot of uh, concerns about dependencies, and I think that is really important to not provide things that people uh, uh, can provide for themselves in that. But, you know, when I went there, uh, I saw a lot of I don't know, Western aid workers and Western missionaries that were going over there and doing everything for the Cambodians and really messing things up. And I, I, because I wasn't aspiring to that, it kind of gave me the opportunity to look at it from the outside and, and, and to see a little bit of some of the unhelpful dynamics there. And so our goal at the beginning wasn't to create a model that we thought could change the world, which I really think now we have, but it was to simply, um, come alongside people who are a lot smarter than me, uh, who had a lot more faith than me, who worked a lot harder than me, and give a small amount of what we had. So there was that. There was also, though, I I did have a sense early on um, that I understood something about how to tell a story and how to raise money. That's what I brought to the table, more than the money. I mean, anybody can bring $250 a month. You know, most of us could figure out a way of doing that. But what I saw as a unique opportunity... uh, was the opportunity to bring some of the skills that I had developed in uh, building our firm, which which started out as a pure graphic design firm, but sort of quickly turned into positioning and messaging and strategy. Um, you know, I realized early on I had designers working for me that were better designers than I was, and if I was going to justify my existence uh, with my hand on the steering wheel at all, it was bringing other things to the table, and that was the ability to understand uh, what somebody's motivations are if they're going to be a donor or a customer, and understand what you're really selling. Uh, rather than, you know, uh, what you might appear to be selling. And and so when I looked at what was going on in Cambodia, I I, I saw this just amazing story, this amazing opportunity. And, And I realized that I had, that if I could get in there and I could get out of the way and tell these people's story in a way that, that would connect with people like me, that I could at the very least raise a little bit of resources for them. So if someone had told you in 2001 when you had the, the inkling of doing this, right? Like you, you started to put feelers out there. You started talking about, we can put a little bit of money together and we can at least put 40 kids into a, into a home where they're safe, right? If someone had told you at that moment that you needed to be running 34 orphan homes in three different countries, working with local governments, giving these kids an education, providing their, for their everyday providing for them emotionally, educationally, physically, and they said that starts tomorrow. 
Well, I wouldn't have had any idea what to do. I wouldn't have had the infrastructure. And probably I would have, even if I had the money to do it, I would have built an infrastructure that would be less healthy than the one we have right now. It would have been a little bit more top-down. I'd have a bigger staff here in the States. uh, And I would probably be uh, dictating some of the things that have grown healthfully healthfully and organically uh, in Asia. Um, To be honest, looking back on it, there are a lot of times where I realized, man, if I just had this, I could die a happy man. When we started our first uh, uh, orphan home, that was a point at which you know we saw these kids, and I knew their stories, and I read their bios, and I met them, and I picked lice out of their hair when I visited, and I, you know, and that that for me at that time, you know, I thought this is this is enough. This is this is great, and in some ways, I could have been. My life would have been a lot simpler if I'd stopped there because it's relatively easy to fund a project at that scale, uh, especially if you have, can take pictures and you know build a website around it and that. And um, it would have been probably manageable to do what I thought I was going to do, run this firm, be successful in this, still maintain a, an upward mobility uh, in my you know, Western context and do something really cool and meaningful uh, on the other side of the world. But, um, you know, as we went along, we just saw that the need was so great and we realized that, that, that we had met people that, that really knew what they needed in their society. And, and, and as, as the resources continued to come, we really didn't feel like we could, uh, step back and say no. Uh, one of the things that sort of obliterated over time our ability to kind of control this was we developed pretty early on a uh, financial support model for the individual homes whereby we would go to a church and instead of saying hey let's do this with individual child sponsorships which takes a lot of administrative work and you know and and is is really difficult you know have a church that says yeah we'll just pay the bill for an entire home or a business that says, yeah, we'll just take one of these homes. We stumbled upon that in 2006, and that's what really started to blow the doors off of it. It made it bigger. We started adding homes quickly, adding staff overseas quickly, um, but it also added responsibilities over here that would eventually make it impossible for me to continue the business and continue uh, the uh, Asia's Hope work we were doing. So I have a theory about that and you can okay. tell me whether or not I'm wrong. I may be totally off, off base, but the fact that it blew up at that point in time and things started to get go better, that they, there was like an upward trajectory at mm-hmm. that point. I think a lot of that had to do with the fact that you were starting to create relationships where, you know, if you're a, a, a nonprofit and people are just sending money because they, they're behind something, that's great. But the opportunity to actually create relationships between the, the organizations that are donating to your organizations and the actual people there and, and the, 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 not just the one-way relationship, mm. but the two-way relationship, yeah. I think played a huge role in that. Am I right? Well, I think so. I mean, I think that's one of the things that was attractive about this model. I mean, when it was just, I, I look back sometimes and I look back with a little bit of nostalgia to when we had one or two homes and I could know the name of every single kid. And uh, thankfully, it never did become about this, but, it, but it, it could have become just about me. You know, I have rescued these kids. I've raised the money for them. And, and I can support them within my own means. You know, it's of a scale I could do that. And, you know, and it, it was great. I'd go there and I'd hang out with the kids. And I, I, I knew those first two or three homes, all, all of the kids. 
But when we started growing in that, we had to uh, outsource a lot of that, those relationships where um, we would invite a church in and that church would now have two or 300 people in the church and they would all have pictures on their refrigerators of kids and they would know this. And, and the benefit was that these people in America now had the opportunity to experience something of what I'd experienced. Uh, I now had the opportunity not just to take a path, but to lead people along a path. And uh, those, when, 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 and that's really what I see for my future is, you know, we're entering our 15 year, uh, 15 year anniversary in, uh, 2017. And uh, one of the phrases that keeps on coming to our mind is uh, Asia Soap is guiding people into courageous leadership on behalf of the world's most vulnerable children. And when it was just me and I'm doing what, you know, took a little bit of courage at the time and, and, and doing this, it, it, it remained at a certain scale. But now when you can sort of give other people that opportunity, hey, look, this isn't something special that I, that I can just do. You too can do this. You too can give sacrificially. You too can take a little step of faith. You too can have that kind of uh, conversation that I had with my wife. Honey, do you think we could do $200 a month? Hey, do you think we could forego this purchase uh, so that we can invest in this? starting to invite other people into that. Um, and it worked out really well. We had something that was you know, modular and scalable and distributed risk with, the, with the, this model, and it just really worked great. But, at, but beyond the model, you're right, it, beyond the model stands a bunch of individual people whose lives now got changed because they get to do the same thing I did. I hear all the time people hearing their stories of how they got involved. I remember my first conversation with John or with any of our board members or Dave or any of these other people involved. I remember my first time I gave money to Asia Hope, or I remember my first trip I took to visit the kids that our church or our business supports. So we've been able to gather other people into this journey and, and, um, and I think that's that there's an incredible power in that. And by that time, you know, um, so fast forwarding a little bit into 2009, we had a number of things happen in 2009. Dave, my co-founder, he was the full-time. I was working bivocationally. I wouldn't get paid by Asia Soap. I was working more than full-time trying to run the firm. Um, Dave was working full-time in the office. Well, he left suddenly. His life took some changes. He left suddenly. And I, I found myself having to make a decision between do I try to hold together in the worst economy that uh, our generation had seen? Do I try to hold together this business um, and which supports, you know, four or five families, you know, uh, or do I try to hold together this organization that's now supporting hundreds of kids and not only the hundreds of kids. You know, on one hand, my clients are going to be disappointed when I say I can't finish this admissions brochure for them. But on the other hand, if Asia's Hope would have failed beyond all the stuff that we're doing overseas, which is always the most important thing, I had now hundreds of families uh, that were sacrificially giving with their kids. They were collecting their, you know, their kids' extra change and their kids were, instead of asking for birthday presents, were saying, I want Soktun to be able to have a birthday present. And so will you give my money to Asia's Hope so that uh, this kid can have uh, a good birthday this year? I had so many people now that were a, a part of this thing. It, it had truly become bigger than me. It always was, but the weight of it at the time that we had to make those crucial decisions, all of that played a factor that was much bigger than any spreadsheet sort of thing or, or even any rational, you know, 
um, decision about when's the best time to close these credit lines, when's the best time to close the doors on this. Because by that time, it's like that treasure in the field. If, if you do find that treasure in the field, if you see that treasure and you pull that open and you see that that thing is filled with gold bars and that thing has, you know, bearer bonds and stock certificates in there, it, it really doesn't matter what the price is on the other side of the ledger. You know, the, the parable that Jesus tells, he sold everything. You know, the other stuff, yes, yeah, so there's a couple hundred thousand dollars in debt here, or there's this, this person is going to be disappointed, or this thing's going to go down. Yeah, that, that's true, and we'll, we'll deal with that, but, but there's a treasure right now that, that I, can, I can choose to go forward and buy that field with that trunk, and I'm already in, you know. Um, the other things, you know, kind of had to fall into place and work themselves out over time, because by that time we knew this is our calling. Um, a lot of people are depending on us to, you know, provide leadership there. And uh, so 2009, shut down the company. I probably should have done it eight months before, tried to hang on, tried to make it work, went into a lot more debt over those eight months. Um, but shut it down um, and, you know, have really never looked back. Never, I mean, I enjoy, I still do graphic design. I just do it for Asia's Hope. You know, I still take photos and write stories. I just do it for our kids and our staff. Um, but I've never looked back and thought, man, I wish I would have gone down the other path. How many homes, how many kids, okay. what locations, where, what's the kind of impact that Asia's Hope is having now? Sure. Well, we started out in Cambodia. Our very first home was in Cambodia, and it was our staff there who taught us that this could be a family and not just an institution, not just a... Re- we, at first, we started, we just wanted to do a really good orphanage. So we started with 40 kids, uh, which is about twice as many as we would do now. Uh, but our staff, our Cambodian staff, showed us that this could actually be a family. And, and once we uh, saw that, uh, sort of all of the other projects we were working on went... Uh, uh, to the side, and we began to focus sort of laser sharp on, on refining and reproducing this model. So we started in Cambodia. Right now, we have uh, 16 homes in two locations in Cambodia. They're sort of clustered in two neighborhoods. So we've got a neighborhood in a city called Batambang, and it has 10 of these homes, and it's got uh, high school and middle school that we provide for our kids and for the community. It's got a church. It's got a soccer field. It's got uh, vocational training uh, programs there. We have a similar, slightly smaller uh, uh, campus with six homes in uh, Phnom Penh. We're also in Thailand. In Thailand, things are a little bit different. Uh, We work with specifically with Hill Tribe kids. So 100% of our staff and 100% of our kids are from hill tribes that would be roughly analogous to uh, Native American tribes. You, here we have the Hopi and the Navajo and the Cherokee. There they have the Lisu and the Lahu and the Hmong and the Aka. Um, and those kids are, not only are they at the bottom of the pile socially because they're orphan kids, but even more so because they're tribal minority kids. And if you look in uh, the brothels in Bangkok, and if you look in the drug trade throughout Thailand, you'll see a, a a disproportionate number of hill tribe kids uh, that are involved in that because they have no other options. And then in India, we work in a town called Kalimpong. It's uh, right up in the Himalayan mountains near the uh, Nepali border. And we work uh, in a population that has been devastated by human trafficking in an area that is an international crossroads for uh, sexual and economic exploitation and trafficking of kids. All total, we have uh, 32 homes, 16 in Cambodia, 10 in Thailand, and six in um, 
in India. So the impact we're having on these kids, we're having individual impact in their lives. These kids have very, very few chances. They're already at the end of their rope. Some of them, we're, as I said before, we're rescuing from places like brothels or factories uh, or from abusive situations, sometimes off the street. Uh, but we're also having a collective benefit to their society. You look at a country like Cambodia, where nationwide, and this includes all classes, all uh, economic situations, nationwide right now, the average high school graduation rate is about 10 to 12%. That means out of every 10 Cambodians, really only one has uh, a hope to even graduate secondary school. At Asia's Hope, we're taking in kids that many of them have been traumatized, many of them have had uh, bad educational beginnings. They come to us, they see a book, they don't know whether to put it on their head or step on it. Um, but within that population, we are seeing about 87% of our kids at Asia's Hope graduating high school. And of those kids who graduate high school or are on track to graduate high school, we're anticipating that about 90% of those will enroll in university. And that's another thing that we do at Asia's Hope. Um, you hear a lot of times about kids aging out of foster care systems or orphanages. Well, we don't age kids out. We've told each of our kids that if you can finish high school, we will, uh, regardless of how old you are, you may have gotten a late start and you may be 25 years old when you graduate high school. We will pay for your university education. We will pay for vocational training for you. And so what we're seeing is among the poorest, among, among those least likely to succeed in Cambodia, for instance, we're seeing 87% of them graduating high school, 90% of them you going on. It. They flipped it. Um, and so the kids who have the worst outlook are having the very best outcome. And we believe that's going to change uh, the entire society. So not only are we, for each of these kids, we're providing comprehensive care, care that is sufficient to break that chain of poverty. So many kids uh, that are helped in developing countries, you've just sort of stretched that chain of poverty. Maybe you have given them a few years before they sink into destitution and exploitation. What we want to do is give the kids everything they need to succeed. So individually, we're breaking that chain of poverty, but we're also creating a new class of educated ambitious, determined, empathetic uh, kids who we believe will uh, lead their uh, communities and even their country in future years. Thanks to John for sharing his story. But more than that, I want to thank John for inviting us into his joy. Jeremy jumped in early and then invited me in. I followed suit, discovered something incredible, and invited more folks in. This is how it works, people. So get out there. Discover what you were meant to do and spread it with the world. If you want to learn more about Asia's Hope and how it is changing the lives of the world's most vulnerable children, go to asiashope.org. To hear more podcasts or read our posts that are meant to nudge the dreamer in all of us to become the doer we were all meant to be, visit us at joyventure.net. And if you're discovering or developing your joy, drop us a line. We'd love to hear from you. Until next time, remember, never stop discovering. Thanks for listening.